Hi, I'm Alex. This is Six Seasons and a Podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to talk with Andy Bavro, TV writer and producer. His credits include shows like Malcolm in the Middle, Last Man on Earth, and Bless the Hearts. Andy Bavro, welcome to Six Seasons and a Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. You know, so it's been interesting talking to um, to some of the other writers and finding out their influences um, that helped shape kind of their narrative instincts. So let's just start off, like, what were some of the shows that kind of had a lasting impact on you? <laughs> Comedically, I mean, uh, I'm from the Monty Python era. Okay. That hit me in uh, sort of uh, middle school. Mm-hmm. And um, I was one of those people who just memor- had it memorized, you know, watched and rewatched yeah. every every episode several times. You know, I would run on PBS to where I grew up and me and a couple friends of mine were those, those annoying kids <laughs> who I think there was might've, there might have been a three or four year period where I and my my friend Steve only spoke to each other in Python quotes. Yeah, I was a big um, a Knights of the Round Table, uh, uh, Holy Grail. Um, that was the, oh yeah, my god, great, yeah, great yeah. Movie. Um, but yeah, let's see what else. I, I mean, I grew up. The sitcoms of my childhood were the Norman Lear sitcoms, All in the Family, yeah. and uh, Jeffersons, and and uh, Maud, yeah. <laughs> Mash, uh, Mary Tyler Moore. You know, uh, I mean, Cheers was a, a huge influence. I was uh, I was older then, but. You know, that's the that's that's just a absolutely sure. perfect sitcom. Yeah. yeah later it was uh, Cheers, uh, uh, Seinfeld, and then Simpsons, of course. But yeah, from my childhood, yeah, I think it's like Monty Python. It was like com- comedian. You know, I would listen to comedy albums like from the. I'm dating myself. I'm. Uh, I try to be vague about my age, but <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's like from the George Carlin, you know, uh, I mean, freaking Bill Cosby records yeah. I would listen to and have those memorized. Uh, and then Steve Martin, when he came mm-hmm. along, of course, you know, had a, his whole first album memorized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that's yeah. really great. Um, was there any any one show or, or experience that made you kind of hooked on the idea of, of doing TV writing or just writing in general? No, I mean, I came at writing... It was a long time coming for me, uh, or it was a roundabout path for me because I grew up in the Midwest, suburbs of Detroit, mm-hmm. and and so I mean I had always thought I, I watched a lot of television, and it was also the era where like if your kid if you TV was called the idiot box, yeah. and it, the general consensus was this makes people stupid, and if you you know it's like it, it was a constant lament in in our home like that by the mom. <laughs> worried that we were all getting too much we were watching too much mm-hmm. tv but anyway so yeah i i there was no particular i i mean i i don't think i ever as a kid said like i want to do this uh, or i would love to do this I, I mean i was funny i was a class clown mm-hmm. and i sort of identified with that tribe and my influences were certainly all the things that came into our house th- through the tv but i yeah, I never really thought I want to do this. I I did I assumed it was something that you that I just can't do. Like uh, that th- this is just something for other people mm-hmm. to do. This is this is for I don't know, uh, New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> coastal coastal, you know, coastal elites yeah. to do. Um and so it wasn't until and so I got a, but I had writing skill. Um you know, I, I had that basic talent and I that showed up at a pretty young age. I and I'm writing comedy and I was always writing my school assignments were always funny and you know there was a you know whenever w- there was like an essay or some sort of a, a you know writing assignment to be done it got to the point in grade school where the other kids would sit would ask the teacher if I could read mine out loud 
So <laughs> I guess in that sense, I was already performing sure. some version of TV or stand-up. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, when I got a writing assignment, it wasn't about doing the assignment. It was about how can I make this funny? I'm sure that was really annoying for my teachers. Well, I guess it's better than uh, not participating and not, you know, you I know, guess, like yeah. uh, alternatives, which is just being a, a, a dickhead, you know, like. So, yeah, right, right, uh, right. I, I could have yeah, been an arsonist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been a booger thrower. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, at least I was a, a, a kid who, who sloughed off and wrote funny essays. At least they're gra- if they're grammatically correct, I mean, you can't, you can't really hold it against you. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And, and, they, and they definitely were. Uh, so, yeah, I had this writing skill and I went to school and I, I ended up going to college and I, I, had two ma- I had two talents coming out of high school. I could write and I could uh, play music. And I, you know, I was a, a band kid. Mm-hmm. I played the tuba and I ended up t- majoring in music uh, for, uh, for a year. I went to college for music thinking... Uh, this is something I can do. Uh, this, uh, I'm real good at this. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure what I, where I was going to take it. Uh, I went to Michigan State University and they have a very strong program there where they churn out, you know, the people who graduate from that music program, uh, most often become teachers, uh, uh college professors or, or, uh, high school band directors. That was their sort of their bread and butter. And so I was looking around in my freshman year thinking, I don't think this is what I want to do. And also I couldn't freaking. I could not do piano. Like every every music freshman has to learn piano, and I was not getting it. Um, and I remember they called me uh, the summer after my freshman year, and they said, "You did, you you didn't fail piano, but you did very very. You're right on the edge, Andy. And we strongly recommend that you take private lessons this summer, or that you retake freshman piano next year." And uh, that was sort of the thing that made me go, oh, you know what? I think I'm not going to pursue this. I, uh, it's not my passion. Yeah. And so then I switched over to English Lit. Uh, I, so I just sort of I said, well, I got two things. I got two things I know how to do. One is music mm-hmm. is writing. So I just switched over to writing uh, and typing. That was the main sc- skill that I <laughs> that I learned in, in middle school that I use to this day. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, sorry. I, it's great. Uh, I'm going into a no, little too much detail. No, no, but no, yes, yeah, so I come out of college and I and I have a, a degree in English literature. I have a, a you know bachelor of uh, I have a bachelor of arts. I have a liberal arts degree. That's sort of you can do nothing or anything with that. And I um, I met a girl who I who was working as a copywriter at an ad agency, and I kind of fell for her, uh, but also fell in love with like the idea that you could do mm-hmm. that. I didn't realize like I hadn't thought about that, um, and so I set my sights on trying to get that job that kind of job. And I, it took me a while, but I got a job writing ads uh, for a small ad agency in suburban Detroit. Um, that's still around called SMZ advertising. Uh, and the, you know what, here's the thing. So I got, I got this interview. It was through a family friend. Like I had, I had sent letters to a bunch of places and I had asked them and I also had an, an, a distant aunt who had worked in advertising in the, like in the Mad Men mm-hmm. era in New York. So she gave me some advice and I had worked out and I'd written some samples and I, I had weaseled out, I'd gotten this interview at this small place and I met the creative director and, you know, I showed him these sample ads that I had written and he, you could, t- I could really tell that he was doing that as a favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't quite, I didn't have what he was looking for. You know, you have to, to hire a junior copywriter, you're taking a chance on someone right, anyways, right. you're going to teach them what to do. And he was kind of blowing me off by saying, like, well, this is uh, nice, interesting stuff, good, uh, you know, nice effort. I don't think we're really looking for this. We do more, like, humor-based. We do more comedy-type stuff here. 
we do like humorous ah. ads. And I hadn't shown him any of yeah. that. I hadn't done that. This is, and so this is kind of a seminal, magical yeah. moment for me because I had, when I was in high school, a bunch of my, my Monty Python friends and I did, made a magazine. We made a zine, like a, a little humor sure. zine. And the whole time we were doing that, it was, you know, the teachers and my parents and everyone, I don't blame them, but it was sort of treated as a, when will Eddie get serious about school kind mm -hmm. of thing? Like, why is he messing around? Why are these kids messing around and not focusing on what's important? Yeah. Um, and I remember taking a, a, a lot of shit for that. Mm. So I'm sitting in an interview at SMZ Advertising and the creative director is saying, we do more humor. And all of a sudden this like lightning bolt goes off and I'm like, I've been funny my whole life. I thought I was supposed to not show people that. Yeah. Uh, and I said, like, and I'm sure he said that as a way of, of politely ushering me out the door. But I, I said, oh, my God, like I, I had this moment where I kind of showed my a little more personality than he had anticipated because I said, oh, man, I'm kicking myself because I I uh, I didn't show you any humor. And I uh, and I, I used to do comedy. You know, I, I used to do this magazine. It's like I, I never realized that that might be an important thing to show huh. someone for a, for a job. Yeah. And so he so instead of saying goodbye and good luck, he said, you know what? Come back in two weeks, write something funny and let me see that magazine. Awesome. And uh, I wrote some funny ads, funny radio commercials for him. And then I came back and I showed him some copies of that magazine. And then uh, then they hired yeah. me. So that was sort of, you know, that was my first comedy writing mm -hmm. job. It was doing. These uh, radio commercials for big boy restaurants. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, Thank you. That's really great. No, it's really, I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, origin stories are, are unique and that's a great one. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I did that. I, I worked in that career for 15 years and I, you know, did, did pretty well and I, I, I liked it and I, I moved up the, the ranks and it wasn't until I moved out to, I took a job in Los Angeles because I wanted to, I was ready to get out of Detroit. I wanted to just move to a bigger market. I talked to a couple of headhunters. I said, I, you know, maybe see if there's something in New York or Chicago or, or San Francisco. Like there were big advertising markets and Detroit is a big ad market too, but it, I wanted to get away from car advertising and mm -hmm. whatever. And so, so a job came through in Los Angeles and I moved out here and it wasn't until then that I kind of started to admit to myself that TV writing is something that I want to mm. do. Uh, and it was because we met you once you live out here, you meet people who do that sure. job and you realize, Oh, it is just a job. It's a job that some people get and some people don't like, you know, I already went through that with advertising. Yeah. I got a job that some people get and some people don't. So maybe I should try this. Mm. But yeah, it wasn't until later in life. Uh, so, you know, I'm already in my thirties when I decide uh, that I might want to try to get a job at uh, writing TV comedy. And so around that time, I was also, I had also started taking improv classes. And that was also just because a friend of mine at, the, at this ad agency said he was doing it and he thought it was fun and it was helping his, his, his work skills. It was helping his presentation yeah. skills. You know, he's getting more comfortable in front of people. It's a good thing you can do for any business. I, I recommend it for any job where you have to speak publicly. Uh, and so I sort of got up the courage to go take an improv class at the Groundlings. And I remember being so nervous about it. And I think the only reason I was like, if it didn't matter to me, I wouldn't have needed to be nervous. Mm -hmm. But even though I thought, even though ostensibly I was just going there to sharpen my work skills, I knew deep down, I must have known deep down inside that if like I was testing, I was going to be testing myself in terms of how can I entertain, how well can I entertain people? And that was a, 
And if I, and if I didn't do well in that test, I would have a real self-esteem problem. Like it would really, really weigh heavily on me. <laughs> I would, <laughs> um, so, uh, I was very nervous going into that audition. You had to audition mm-hmm. to take a groundlings class. It was just an audition to make sure that you're not a psycho and that <laughs> you can take that you'll, that you won't make all the other students uncomfortable. Right. So I passed that test and they put me in a beginner class and, but I took it real seriously, and I remember, and and I did well there. Another, oh, Michael McDonald, who's this guy uh, from Mad TV. I don't know if you any, if you remember him. He did this some really great characters on Mad TV, and he now he's a, a television director. He was my first improv teacher, mm-hmm. and in the, within the first one or two classes, he pulled me aside and he said, "Are you?" Or he called me out during a, an exercise, and he said, "Are you a writer?" Or he said, "Are you a stand-up?" And I said, "No." why do you ask? And he said, because I can see you thinking. He said, are you a writer? And I said, yeah. And he said, you're, you're trying to write. I see what you're doing. You're trying to write and you can't, you can, improv doesn't let you do that. You can't do it fast enough. When he said that in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, watch me. I'll fucking write real fast. (laughs) Don't tell me I can't write my way through this sketch. I'm very, very good. And so is that instrumental then in, in moving forward with, with the, sh- I mean, is this a, m- a moment like that where you're saying, well, uh, it was a moment in the sense that, you know, what was, a, was what, what was a moment was in the sense that I was, I, you know, was thinking of myself as this kind of like this corporate guy from suburban Detroit who was working in, in a, you know, in a cubicle job. And all of a sudden someone who sort of didn't know me, didn't know anything about me, except he had seen me do a couple scenes in you know in an improv class said are you a stand-up and that was that was kind of a moment where i was like oh i guess i pass for a stand-up mm. like i guess i could it's la yeah. i mean i'm in the you know L, the way los angeles works the way the creative community works it's almost like college and you, so i figured it's like i was that was basically my freshman year of of um comedy college mm. and it's like hey, i'm a freshman and uh i'm not significantly worse than any other freshman mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm in this class. I'm in this sta- uh, improv class with aspiring actors, aspiring stand-ups, people who are getting some work. Uh, you know, other people who have not yeah. worked yet, but who are who dream of it. And some people who are very successful, uh, who are trying something new. And it's like I'm passing. Yeah. I'm passing. I'm, you know, I'm I'm one of them. Yeah. So I guess in that sense, it did help me identify my tribe. And I did very well at the Groundlings, not because I could improv, because I'm not a great, I'm not a good improviser at all. I'm terrible but that I could write my way out of situations. And when you take more classes there, what's interesting is that they sort of start off teaching you improv and then you get into another higher level where you're taking sketch writing classes there. Okay. And uh, so for a lot of actors who do that program, who do like an improv program, whether it's Groundlings or, or um, UCB or, or, um, uh, the other ones in Prov Olympic, uh, second city, um, for like for a lot of actors who do that, it gets harder and harder as they go because you get more into the writing. And for me, it got easier and easier because the, the writing was the part I already knew how right. to do. Hmm. I was already, I had already been writing radio commercials, which are 30 second you know, 60 second long sketches. Right. And so I got to the point at the here, do you want me to just walk you all the way up to my TV, uh, uh first TV job? 
I, I'm confident that, um, that there are a lot of people who just are, are going to be very interested in just the, the, the evolution, because I think that's, that's what, uh, we're here for is just learning about our, our heroes and what they're doing and how they got to that. So <laughs> if, if you think this is nerdy, that's fine. That's fine. But <laughs> all right. No, 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 no. I just want to make sure it's still somewhat interesting. Oh, yeah. But I think, I mean, like any, I think when you ask anyone how they got their job or most people like except for jobs that have a very specific um, entry path, like a doctor, lawyer, Mm -hmm. when you ask a lot of people how they got their job that became their career, there's almost always an element, you know, element of serendipity or right place, right time or uh, a friend of a friend or I don't know why I got lucky that day or I don't know why that interview went well for me. But so my story has, has plenty of those, you know, cause there's that moment when I walked, you know, when I, I, my dad pulls a favor and I get a meeting with a creative director at an agency who does not want to hire me. <laughs> and then I accidentally say something that piques his curiosity. Yeah. And then I accidentally nail that test. And so at the grounding, so I'm doing improv and I'm doing, and I'm kind of, and I'm enjoying it. And I'm in with, I'm in pr- improv classes with a lot of people who went on to become more well-known. Uh, uh, my uh, so I'm in the performing in their uh, Sunday uh, show, which is like the the uh, junior level, you know, like, like yeah. the whatever you call it, the the double A yeah, level, sure. minor uh, leagues, yeah. the JV yeah. uh, groundlings. And in that in that cast with me is Jim Rash mm. and uh, Cheryl Hines mm. and uh, Rachel Harris, wow. uh, Will Forte, mm. uh, Emily Spivey, who I now work with yeah. on Bless the yep. Hearts. Just coming up right after in the cast, I was I was in briefly with Melissa McCarthy and uh, Ben Falcone, her husband, and so uh, um, I'm probably leaving out some people who became famous, but point is, and other really really talented sure. people who who have not become famous. But the point is, and and we, you know we were right, we were there when Cheryl Hines walked in one day and said, "I had this audition." With this guy, I don't know if you know him. He co-created Seinfeld, but no one really knows his name. His name is Larry David, but that's not important. And and uh, he, uh, I booked it. Like that's, we were there awesome. when when Cheryl got that job. She's so great. And we were all like, "Oh my god!" You know. So it's like you're there, and then you're there when people are getting auditions for SNL. Mm. Oh, Maya Rudolph. I I left off mm. her name. Yeah, Maya Rudolph is the other big. So all these people at sort of at the very beginning of their career. And I'm seeing it happen and I'm starting to think I'm, I'm not, you know, comp- these people are definitely m- more talented than me, but I'm not embarrassing myself <sighs> on stage with them. Like I'm hanging with them <laughs> yeah. for, for the most part. And it's, it's a blessing and a curse because you, there's a ton of, ah, this angst and sort of competition at that, le- you know, in, in improv classes. In, anytime you go watch an improv show, just know that everyone on stage thinks that they are. Uh, way better than the person next to them and really jealous of the person next to them. (laughs) (laughs) Like the, the sense the competition and the sense of like self judgment there is so crazy and you have to really actively work to keep yourself sane. Um, Mm. But so I had to keep sort of in while I would see other people get these great things happen to them. And, and I would be, I would ha- instantly have this feeling of like, oh, the, yeah, that's because they're good and I suck. Uh, but then, the, and then combined with this feeling of like, but wait a minute, why did that happen for them and not me? Like, am sure. I, maybe that should happen for me. This crazy, crazy ego trip. But the main takeaway, you know, and then I would calm myself down, take a breath and go, look, here's what's, here's what's real. Like you have a basic ability 
and you're able to perform and make people laugh. And if you work hard, you know, it's like, and you have the ability to learn. So if you just fucking work, you know, just pay attention. Don't get too wrapped up in success or failure. Just do the work and like, see how far you can go. Um, that's yep. the attitude that kind of kept that's me saying. That's great advice. Yeah, no, that's great advice though. <laughs> Um, and the other thing that helped tremendously was that I never gave up my day job. Mm-hmm. So I was with people who were sort of aspiring, who were aspiring actors who, who were really counting on things to ha- who were hoping things would happen for them and who were looking at their bank account thinking, I don't know how much longer I can, I can stick with this. Whereas I was just like, if this, if nothing ever comes of this, it's fine. I'll be very, I'll be disappointed, but you know, I have, I have a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, have, I have a wife who loves me. I, I'll be okay. Um, and so I, at one point, it was Will Forte who had had some success. Uh, he had uh, written for Letterman a little bit, and he had he was writing on a, he had written on a sitcom that '70s show. Mm-hmm. So he had gotten some work as a writer, and he had an agent, and he had he hadn't gone to SNL yet, of course. But he kind of liked me, and he 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 we had. The sensibility, he liked my sensibility. I mean, he's, he's a genius. Uh, so I was honored that, you know, that he knew my name, but he, cause he was like, a, everyone knew that Will was going places. Yeah. Huh. Uh, but he said, Hey, uh, have you ever thought about like writing for, for television? And I was like, Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought about it, but you know, I don't know. Like I just sort of wouldn't let myself <laughs> say that, yes, that, that would be a huge dream. But he basically just offered, he said, hey, if you ever want, I'll, I'll introduce you to my agent. Oh, geez. Um, Yes, please. And, um, yeah, well, I didn't take him up on it. You know, I, I've said, Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I got a good job. You know, it's like a crazy, I don't know why I said, I just set it aside for like a mm-hmm. year. And then I rethought that, that discussion like a year later. And I called him up and I said, Hey, do you, are you still serious about that offer? It was not an offer at all. He was just sort of shooting mm-hmm. the breeze with me, but he said, yeah. Uh, so I put together a package of, of, uh, sketches that I had written. And I, I sent them to Will and he said, I'll, I'll just draw, I'll send it to my agent and I'll tell him I like you and we'll just, you know, we'll see. Probably nothing will happen. And I was like, yeah, probably nothing will happen. But I was like, God, if, oh, what if this guy doesn't like me? You know, <laughs> anyway, and, and Will, sure enough, nothing did happen. Months and months went by and I didn't hear anything. And every once in a while I would talk to Will and I would say, Hey, did you ever hear anything back from your agent? And he'd say, what? He hasn't talked to you yet. Uh, let me bug him. So Will was not only was he nice enough to offer to show my stuff to his agent. Cause, and that's seems like a, a little gesture, but it's, you know, he put himself out sure. there. It's like, if he, if he wastes his agent time, his agent's time, it reflects poorly on yeah. him. So I took yeah. it as a compliment, but anyway, so not only was he nice enough to do that, but then he also put up with me bugging him every two months saying, I haven't heard back from this guy. I sort of put it aside. I sort of set it aside and thought, well, you know what? I, okay. So you had a chance to, you got your stuff in front of an agent, a real Hollywood agent and, and didn't work out for whatever reason. He's not responding. No big deal. You tried, you know, it's like I had to try to sort of convince myself that that's fine. I still have my job, still have my paycheck. I still have my wife. Uh, <laughs> I still have the things that matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and at around the same time, so I, uh, yeah, around the same time I, and I, I was starting to, I was having a bit of an existential crisis. Uh, it was around the time I, uh, also, uh, got sober. Uh, you know, I had been, uh, I, I was a big fan of marijuana. Mm-hmm. I used it all the time, constantly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I hit a crisis point with that, mm. with that relationship yeah. where I decided I need to stop. Uh, and it was a hard thing to stop. I know it's kind of a joke 
people in recovery will say like you can't get addicted to marijuana but i i was whatever your coping <laughs> mechanism it was hard is. for me to stop yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you're yeah exactly yeah. exactly whatever you do whatever momentary hit of yeah. whatever that you take in order to feel good you can get addicted yeah. to yeah and so i was sort of at a low point in my life where i really was thinking i'm a loser I don't know why I'm not, I'm, I'm not happy with my career and this Brownlee's thing didn't work out in this relationship, you know, and, and you know, even Will Forte tried to help me out and it didn't go anywhere. And I, I had to sort of have a little, another little pep talk with myself where it was like, you know what, the things in your life that are working are working. You have your job, you have your brain, you have a person who loves you. It's like, don't freak out. Yeah. Uh, if, what what's going wrong? You have a dream that may not come true. That's like, that's pretty low on the scale, especially today in the days of coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh no, poor me. I have a dream that might not pan out. It's like, that's, I had to sort of keep telling myself, uh, your life is very good compared to many other lives. Mm. And so if this TV thing doesn't happen, whatever, and, you know, the other thing that I would tell myself is like, look, you're in a city where talented people go. And you know a lot of talented people and you can have, it's like you have had fun with talented people. You've been on stage with talented people. It's like, if that's not the goal, it should be. It's like the, the uh, uh, you got to play, you get to go do improv. Yeah. You, you get to go perform if you yeah. want. You could, I could do stand up if I wanted. I'm glad I never went that way. <laughs> um, and so then I sort of shifted my attitude to like, you're in, you're a creative person. You should just do creative things. You should just amuse yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, so that's when I set about making this, uh, finishing this video that I had an idea for a, 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 a funny video that I wanted to make that was floating around in my head. It was just a title, but it was to do a Ken Burns mock, a mockumentary yep. uh, in the style of Ken Burns. And it was called the, the old Negro space program. <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah. Uh, and I had the title <laughs> and I knew that it's like that title popped into my head and I knew exactly, I knew that that was really, really juicy. And I, so I was just, I just decided, you know what? I don't know how to do video editing or anything. My wife is a graphic designer and I like playing around in Photoshop. Yeah. And so maybe I, maybe I'll just make this video. And so I just started collecting photos and, and Photoshopping them and, and learning how to use final cut and doing pans and zooms on photos and do, and I did a temp track with my narration. And I, you know, within a few weeks I had, you know, 30 or 40% I had produced this thing. That was pretty funny. <clears throat> right around that same time. Oh, geez, Alex, I'm, I skipped a huge chunk. Um, I can edit. What, 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 did you, what did I miss? Well, no, actually, you won't be able to okay. edit it, but I'll, I have to, I'll just jump okay. back. Even though the thing with uh, Will Forte's agent didn't pan out, I was, and I was working at my job at my ad agency. I had another uh, guardian angel who looked out for me, and it was Jordan Black, who went on to become Dean. Uh, dean uh spread yeah, okay on community mm -hmm. uh the city college yep. dean jordan jordan was also in that group with me at the groundlings and he had gotten himself a job on a, a sketch variety show on the dub on the cw network and it was called hype oh, okay. uh, it yep. was very short-lived and it wasn't great uh but jordan had gotten a job there and he had when he was going up for that job he gave me a call and he said hey because he and i had written a few sketches together and he said do you mind if i sh put our co-written sketches in my packet of material i'll keep i'll put your name on it obviously but i'm really proud of these things and the work i did and then i want them to be part of my portfolio and i said yeah totally go for it and so he got this job and then he called me and he said hey the guys at hype really like this one sketch we wrote 
he and I wrote a sketch. It's terrible, <laughs> terrible sketch. It was about a hip hop chess player <laughs> uh, uh, who was shaking up the world of professional yeah. chess uh, because he because he was he was infusing it with rap, <laughs> and it was called Kid Rook. Uh, nice. Oh my God! It's just a terrible, terrible. Yes. It's just bad enough to be on that show. <laughs> um, he said the guys running the show really like that sketch, and they want to produce. They want to put it in the show. But I said, I'm not comfortable doing that unless you get compensated somehow. And he so they want to meet you. So Jordan Black got me a meeting on this show. Nice. And I met the guys who were running it, uh, Terry Sweeney and uh, Lanier Laney, who were their names. Terry Sweeney was an SNL cast member for, uh, for a time yeah. in the late 80s, yeah, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, here's the deal. We, are, we have four episodes left, and we're probably getting canceled. <laughs> um, but we want to... We want to hire you as a staff writer so that we can use your sketch. I guess, I don't know if they could have just bought the sketch from me. It was probably dicier and the the pay for a staff writer on that show was low enough that it kind of, whatever, it was something they could do easily. Uh, And I said, this is an insane, I'm going to give you an insane answer to your question, but I have a day job that I like. And you're offering me a dream, but I'm not so sure I can quit my day job for just four weeks of work. Mm. Like I said, I just, I'm not, I was kind of hinting at, could we do this another way where I could get credited, which would be valuable to me, uh, and maybe get paid, but I don't have to quit my really comfortable advertising job. Anyway, yeah. Terry said, you know what? You don't have to be here. We'll, we'll just hire you. <laughs> you if, if you can come here on Monday mornings for pitch meetings, you can write the material wherever you are and just email it. Wow. So they gave me this chance of a lifetime, which was to work on a, a, a network sketch variety show without having to, wow. without even going in. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, the, the pay was very low, very, very hey. low. I think it was, it was around a thousand dollars a yeah, week. I'm an adjunct professor. So I, uh, trust me. <laughs> oh, you see, you, okay. So you get late, it. Yes. <laughs> what if I, what if I said to you, Oh, the pay was really low. It was only like 10 grand a week. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd cry <laughs> on the side, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the pay was considerably yeah. lower than that. Uh, but anyway, and so of course I wanted to go there. I didn't want to not be there. So I, I did this freaking thing where I, um, God, we're not going to have enough time to talk about community. I'm sorry I'm taking no, so that's long. All right. But I've got to tell It's an interesting it story, right? You'll yeah, edit it. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so I was at a level at my job at Gray Advertising where I was sort of autonomous there. I was producing, writing and producing radio commercials. And if people didn't see me in the office, they kind of would have. I was a vice president. And if people didn't see me around, they assumed I was making something. So I kind of had some, so I would go to gray advertising at Wilshire and Fairfax. I would turn on my computer. I would drape my hoodie over my chair and then I would get back in my car and go up over the hill to Warner Brothers to go hang out in this office at Hype with uh, Jordan Black and uh, my other friend David Susson and some other cool people I met there writing on this show. And I did, I got away with it for four weeks. I had a friend at work at gray who I told about this, my partner. And I said, Hey, this is what I'm doing. I feel terrible about it, but I cannot, I can't pass this up. If anyone's looking for me, can you, can you uh, page me? I had a pager. Like this is, be- this is just before cell phones. I think I said, if anyone's looking for me, can you let me know? And I will rush back. It just, it, you know, you don't have to lie for me, but just tell them you haven't seen me. And then I'll rush back and I'll make it, you know, I'll do the lying. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I lived that way for, for um, four weeks and I got caught right at the end of it. Uh, because my boss said, 
Hey, I haven't seen you. What have you been doing? And I said, Oh God, I should have told, I lied. And I said, Oh, I should have told you I'm taking a bunch of, I'm working from home. Uh, I'm taking a bunch of personal time because I got some family stuff I need to deal with. Like I, I told this big lie. And the problem was that he liked me so much that he became concerned. What, what is this thing that you're dealing with at home? And he asked a couple questions and he cared about me. And I said, God damn it, Peter, I'm, I lied. I'm so sorry. I took, I'm moonlighting. Here's what happened. I got a chance to work on this cool TV show, but it's just for four weeks and I got away with it for three weeks. And, and now you've caught me and I'm really, really sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I should have taken it as vacation or something. And he, he said, look, typically when a, when a copywriter tells me I've been moonlighting, the next thing they say is, I'm starting my own company and I'm stealing your business. So he said, thank you for not telling me that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he said, just, yeah, he said, just take, take the rest of it as vacation time uh, and get out of here. Uh, so he let me do it. So I had had that job. And that was when finally Will Forte's agent uh, called me. And I thought it was, I always, I thought it was a coincidence until years later, someone said, no, that's not a coincidence. He heard that you got a job. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) That's what, you know, it's like there was no point in him calling you until he knew that you were employable. So I, then I finally met with his agent and, you know, Matt Rice, who's a really great agent who I love and have been with him for this whole time. He said, okay, so you did, you did a great thing for yourself. You got yourself a job on a show. Now that show's canceled. And, um, I need to, you know, I want to try to get you something else, but I need your help. You need to write me a spec script. So he had, he told me to write a pilot. He said, I've been having some people write specs of existing shows, but I've been having better luck with pilots. And he said, write me something. And I guess the, th- so that gets you back to the point where I was right around that time was around the time I was having this, you know, crisis, this personal mm-hmm. crisis, because he wanted me to write a pilot and I didn't think I could. I had never written anything that length. Mm. I knew how to write a one page radio script or a three page sketch, Mm. but I didn't know how to write a 30 page sitcom. And I was, I was freaked out and I thought, now you've really done it. Now you've blown it. Now you've, you've, you've used this great connection. You've gotten this great uh, meeting with this great agent. uh, And he's asked you for something and you're going to disappoint him. It's amazing how our fraud complex just like uh, appears (laughs) out of nowhere and it just rears its ugly head and it just wants us. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I did, I, I hunkered down and I tried to write him something. And then he, he called back and this is another amazing moment for me where he called and he said, this is not good. Uh, he said, I'm not telling you, you're not good. I'm telling you, I can't, I'm not going to show this piece of material to anyone, uh, cause it won't reflect well on you. Uh, and he said, try again. That's all he said. Hmm. Um, but that was when I, that was when I was like, oh fuck, I, I can't do it. He's, he exposed me. He knows I, he knows I'm no yeah. good. And I swear to you, Alex, uh, a year and a half went by before I even attempted to write another script. Mm. Maybe not a year. Maybe it was about nine months. But it was a long-ass time where people in my life were saying, why aren't you writing a script for this guy? And I was saying, I think I can't. I think I'm good. I think I I reached the level of my incompetency, and I'm just going to do this advertising Mm. thing for the rest of my life. And I'll be be happy. And finally, I, I got my ass back in the chair and I wrote something and a certain freedom took over because I was like, it doesn't matter if I succeed or fail at this I, because I've already failed. I've already blown it with this guy. I've already taken over. I've already taken a year to get back to him. Like he's, he's not going <laughs> to every once in a while I would call him because I now had a relationship with him and I would say, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, I'm just checking in. I just want to let you know, I'm still writing that script. You know, I'm going to write you something good. I'm going to write you something good. And I was lying because mm. I didn't believe it. And I'm sure he knew that, that I didn't believe it. 
And then he would stop me and he would say, Andy, this is, I don't care. This is your career. (laughs) (laughs) Which is another, there are two real favors that he did for me by being that sort of harsh with it. Because he didn't, it wasn't mean. Yeah. He wasn't being mean. He was just saying, look, I'm playing my game you're, and you're playing your game. I, our games don't have much to do with one another. Like I'm an agent and it's like I sell stuff. You give me something I can sell, I'll sell yeah. it. Um, but I don't care about whether you're good enough or bad enough. Like he didn't say all this, but this is what I, what I got out of it was like, it mattered not to him what quality of a person I was. It just mattered to him whether I had something he could do something with. And so when I, when I sort of let go and realized that it was only, I, all I, my only assignment has ever been to please myself. Like I, I, whenever I get caught up in thinking like, what is someone else going to like? That's when I'm, that's when I don't do my best stuff. You know, the only assignment for a creative person is to do such stuff that they like. Uh, and I finally wrote something that was, that was pretty good. Uh, because I had finally sat down and said, fuck it. I don't care if this is good or bad. I'm just going to do what I want. And it was good. And he called me and he said, this is good. Uh, I can do something with this. So then he sends me on a couple meetings and they don't pan out. And that's when I hit the, and that's when I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm not, I'm, it's probably not going to work out for me. I'm in my late thirties now. I don't think this is going to happen. I think people, you know, he, so I have a good piece of material and he's sending me on meetings, but I'm in meetings with people who are younger mm-hmm. than me and they're looking at me and they're like, well, this isn't a TV writer. This isn't a person at the beginning of a TV writing career. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I didn't look the part. Mm-hmm. And I started to really sort of come to grips with, oh, I, pr- I probably missed the boat. I probably blew it. And that's when I started making the old Negro space program. Cause I thought uh, maybe all I can do is just um, do shit and show it to people and, and get, make, make them laugh. Yeah. Wow. And um, uh, so we're really, from the time Will Forte said, have you ever considered writing television to this moment was probably five years. Uh, and then finally, Matt calls me back and he said, there's an opening at this show, Malcolm in the middle. They, they had been on for four seasons. It was a mm-hmm. hit. He said, there's an opening. Don't get your hopes up, uh, but they're reading your material. Uh, and I've talked to the guy who's, who is um, filtering the material for the showrunner. And he says, he, he, you're, you're towards the top of the pile. He kind of, he kind of likes your script. So I was like, Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then he said, they just asked if you, if you have anything else you could show them, do you have another script? And I said, well, I don't, but I have this fake mockumentary. I have this mockumentary that I'm halfway done with. And uh, I put it up. So I put it on like a little web server for them. This is YouTube didn't exist yet, but I got it. I got it to him in progress and he sent it to them and they loved it. And they called me for a meeting. Wow. And then they called. So I called, here's the thing. I'm still working at gray advertising for the Peter Mooney, who I adore, who loves me, who is also a big, uh, a Sherpa for me, like a, an Eskimo who brought me in from mm-hmm. the cold. He hired me at several different ad agencies. You know, he was very important to my advertising career. And uh, I'm driving to this meeting and uh, the agent calls me and he says, what's your week looking like? Cause he said, they just, they want to meet you. And he said, don't get your hopes up. They, I don't know. I, I don't think they're looking for a writer for the staff, but they may give you a freelance job or something like that. I'm on my way to the meeting. He says, what's your week looking like? And I said, I don't know why. And he said, I'm getting a weird vibe from them. This is what makes him a good agent was that he reads tea leaves really, really well. And I'm not sure why he got this vibe from them, but he, he sensed that they were in a tight spot. For some reason, he said, there's a chance. I can't honestly, Alex, I can't remember why he said this, 
Uh, but he said, there's a chance they're going to offer you a job right now. Like, I'm not sure why he said that. He's, and he said, don't freak out. Just be ready. Hmm. Uh, of course, I freaked out. <laughs> I went and took the like a very nervous bowel movement in the McDonald's <laughs> on uh, Ventura Boulevard and Laurel Canyon. There's a plaque um, to this day. <laughs> <laughs> and I go into this meeting with Neil Thompson, uh, who was uh, one of the higher ups there, and he, it was the meeting was ostensibly for me to pitch story ideas to them hmm. uh, and have them maybe. Uh, approve one for me to go write, uh, which was freaking me out. Mm. And I stayed up all night writing story ideas. But Neil was very nice. He had called me before the meeting and said, here's the kind of things we were looking for. So he was coaching me. Oh, you know, it's great. like yeah. everyone was very nice. So I go into this meeting and I pitch them my five or six ideas and they laugh at a couple and they, a couple and they said, well, we've done that. We already did that. Or we would never do that. Uh, but at the end of the meeting, he says, um, well, uh, here's the deal. We really just wanted to see if you were a psycho because <laughs> uh, we're kind of in a bind. Uh, we need some, we have a story that we're already breaking and we need someone to write it over the Christmas holiday. It was basically, this is something that happens on a ton of sitcoms. By the time you get to November, your staff is burnt out. Mm. You're only halfway through your, your writing season and um, everyone wants a break. Mm. And it's like, they decided they're just going to find some, some eager beaver like me and give him his, his lucky break yeah. by having me do the work over Christmas while they get to take a breather. So they had a story. So he said, what do you do in the rest of this week? And I said, I, whatever you well, want, yeah. man. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> um, he said, well, we, we, we may just have you, we're just, we, we just want to sh walk you through this outline and you, you can, you'll work here this week while we continue to break the story. So you'll be part of that. And then we'll send you off with a very, very, very thorough outline and you'll write the first draft for us. And I said, fantastic. And all, before I knew it, a PA was handing me a lunch menu. And I had, so that was my first, that was the moment I got, wow. that was my first job. I mean, the hype was a job, but it was, sure. I don't count it. Yeah. And I was being handed a lunch menu. And then such amazing things happened. My head is spinning. I cannot believe this has worked out. And I'm thanking God because now I've got some sobriety. Mm. And I'm like, this could only have happened because I got my shit together. Mm. And this could only have happened because I decided that my happiness didn't rely on mm. it. You know, th there's so so much like spiritual shit mm. happening in my head in that moment because I was just like, this only happened because I let go. This only happened mm. because I decided I didn't need it. This only happened because I was I, I finally was like free from the burden of my fucking insecurity and all that spiritual stuff. Mm. Uh, so Neil said, um, well, come on and meet the guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I go and uh, uh, he walks me into the writer's room and. They had all, luckily, I mean, the thing that helped was they had all watched the old Negro space program and they were all already, they already believed I was funny. They already thought I was, yeah. uh, I was one of yeah. them. Like I was already in the tribe because yeah. I had made them laugh uh, and that's how it works. And so they were all smiles and they were like happy to meet that's me great. and they were like, we, I love that thing. And so, and so Neil walks me in the room and he explains to them, Andy's going to, Andy's going to work here this week. Uh, we're going to show him this outline for this episode. It was a Malcolm episode that ended up being called Reese's party. It was an episode where uh, the parents, Hal and Lois go on, they go on a, a romantic weekend. She's, she's eight months pregnant. They go on this getaway because it's their last chance before uh, she gives birth to their fifth child. And the kids have the house all to themselves. And Reese throws a massive party and the party gets taken over by a bunch of shady older kids who are probably cooking meth 
uh, in their garage. Yeah. I didn't watch a ton of Malcolm in the Middle, but I feel like I've, I've seen that episode. That's, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that story, that was a story that they, you know, I barely wrote. Yeah. I mean, they, they did so much of the heavy lifting. All I did was organize their thoughts into a script. It was a great way to start. Yeah. So Neil walks me in and says, Hey, well, this is Andy. Everyone says, hi. Uh, he's going to be working here. Then a, a PA is handing me a lunch menu. I quickly call my, uh, call Peter Mooney and I say, Hey man, remember that time <laughs> two years ago when I, when I snuck behind your back? He said, yeah, what's happening? I said, well, I want to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> he said, what do you need? I said, it's two, it, it's a, it's a week. I need, I need a week. Uh, and he said, take uh, great. You're on vacation. Take it as vacation wow. time. So That's he awesome. gave me his blessing, yeah. which was amazing. It's amazing. Uh, Cause, and then Michael Borkow pulled me into a, a little office and he said, Hey, uh, I'm Michael. Nice to meet you. I just want to say, um, you're about to go to work in a writer's room. They can be very weird places. Hmm. Do you have any questions for me? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I, I said, well, I'm, I'm guessing that there's going to be an unspoken hierarchy and I'm guessing that I should um, keep my mouth shut and figure out the social dynamic until I know what's what. And then he patted me on the shoulder. He said, okay, you're, you'll be fine. <laughs> Uh, but the, so that was how I got okay so that's the story yeah that, that's awesome that's pretty yeah, good no thank you uh, is this going to end up being a, so this will end up being a two-parter like Megan's right can I have more can I have as many parts as Megan got uh, you can keep on talking as long as you want we started early technically right uh, so um, yeah there's uh, there is there is a hi- no, there's no hierarchy within the six seasons that a podcast so you guys get as long as you want um, I probably won't do as many Q and A's, but I I think there's you know um, there's a, a enough episodes that you've done that people have uh, absolutely loved that we can go through a few of them. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So so that's Malcolm in, in the middle, and you know you went in, you figured out there's a hierarchy in that show, and then mm-hmm. you come into this show, and you know Dan's like, I don't believe in that; it's a meritocracy, and but. <laughs> Tell me about your interview with community then. Um, it's another story that involves, yeah, it's another pretty good story, much shorter, thankfully. But I was, you know, after I did Malcolm for, for three and a half yeah. years and I foolishly believed that I was the cock of the walk and that I could sort of, that I, I broke in, I made it, I'm working network television now. And I thought, I called Matt and I said, Hey, I, uh, I like this show, how I met your mother. I want to work there. <laughs> I thought I could just do that. Like I thought I could just tell him what, what I was interested in and he would find, he would get me yeah. there and had a, had a nice meeting with those guys, Carter and Craig, but they didn't hire mm. me. And that's when I realized I can't just, uh, Oh, you got to actually, this is the life. Mm. The whole time I was working at Malcolm, they, the older, the, like the veterans in the room would say, don't get used to this. Cause you're working on a show that goes 22 episodes a year and keeps getting renewed. Mm. And that's not the light. That's not what happens to TV writers mm. that this is an uh, anomaly. Mm. And so I found that out because I went after Malcolm. I didn't get How I Met Your Mother. And I got a couple. I went for three or four years on shows that you've never heard of that got canceled after six episodes or 12 episodes. Um, and it's not, a you know, I was making, you know, I wasn't starving, uh, but it, it was a far cry from the money I was making at Malcolm and, and the prestige I had. Then. And then so I um, had gotten an offer. I had I had co-written or I had, I had not co-written, but I had punched up a pilot that went on. Nickelodeon called Super Ninjas, 
a live action ninja <laughs> show, which was really great and really fun. And I liked the guys who, who wrote the script and I, I, I had a good connection. There was an executive at Nickelodeon who knew me from Fox and she had gotten me this quick job to punch up this thing, but then they decided they wanted to make the pilot. And I got this offer. Would you come and co-run this pilot with these guys? And then you would be a, you would be an executive producer on this show if it went. Wow. And it was a huge, yeah. it was amazing. Yeah. And I didn't think I was ready for it, but it was a, an amazing offer. And then I, and so one day, so Matt calls me and he says, here's, we have a problem. Uh, Nickelodeon just made you this offer, but the people at community uh, like your material and want to meet you. And I said, and he said the thing, and I said, well, that's just a meeting and Nickelodeon is an offer. So we should just take the bird in the hand. And he said, don't say, don't tell me that until you've watched community. So <laughs> I oh, hadn't wow. watched the first yeah, season. Okay. This was after the season one yeah, had aired sure. or was still airing. And he said, he said that Nickelodeon job is lovely, but the, you know, it's children's television. The pay is worse. I don't want to shit on this is. I, I, at the risk of sounding elitist or something, it's sort of understood that children's television is it, it, the pay is lower, and it's there's some really amazing work being done there, and especially in, in at you know in the teen space, the pay is worse, and it's not as prestigious. And it's like basically, if you have if you're working in network sitcoms, the, Matt's advice to me was don't take a job on a Nickelodeon show until you have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> basically, he was what he said to me was. Andy, there will come a time in your life when you can only work at Nickelodeon. <laughs> I took that to heart. Yeah. And he said, plus, you ha have you seen Community? I said, no, I've heard good things. And he said, you need to watch it. And he sent me a bunch of DVDs. And I watched and I binged. So I binged all of season one. Actually, most of season one because Paintball had not aired yet. Okay. So I binged all of season one that I had. I binged like 16 episodes of season one. And I showed my mom, I was home for, uh, for a family thing. And I showed my mom and I said, look at this show. Like it hit me like a lightning bolt. I mean, I had never seen, it's like, it really went all the way back to my Monty Python brain because it was like, I have never been like, if I have a chance to be even vaguely associated with something this good, uh, I will be, I, I'll be able to die happy. Like, it just, it not only was it, it was so, so good, but it was up my alley. You know, it was like the kind of stuff that I, that I wanted to do that I had always aspired to do that I thought I was good at, but that I, you know, it's like, it's like the style of humor that I thought I was good at and I was good at, but I had never seen anyone as good at it as Dan Harmon. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, this is a, <sighs> I, so I called him and I said, you're absolutely right. We have to say no to Nickelodeon. And I wrote them a nice email saying, I'm really sorry, I, uh, but I can't do yeah. it. And then, so I, and then I go back, I fly back to LA for this meeting. And it was like, first, oh, uh, Matt was also mad at me for being out of town. He said, why are you, why are you in Detroit <laughs> over staffing season? And I was like, I had a bar mitzvah. What are you going to do? So, and I, so I cut that trip short. I got on a plane. He said, they're going out. Of, Neil Goldman is heading out of town. They're on, they're on hiatus. So they need to meet you and you need to get your back at your ass back to LA. And so I, I, I changed flights and I flew in and they met me on a Sunday because uh, Neil was going out of town. I, I was so grateful that they would accommodate me. I, w I bought them gifts in the airport in Detroit on the way out of town. And I, I bought them this, um, this uh, local delicacy called Sanders uh, hot fudge topping. Mm. Uh, so I, I bought a bunch <laughs> of Sanders hot fudge and I brought it to, I went right from the airport to my meeting. 
uh, and I brought, so I walked into the meeting and I, and I had a gift for them all. I handed them all some, some hot fudge to thank them. And so it was Neil Goldman and Garrett Donovan and Dan and Russ Krasnov. Mm-hmm. The way this worked in large part, this worked out because Neil and I have the same agent, you know, you, if you like your agent, you trust your agent. And so it works, you know, if you're if you're in the position to hire writers, you often will call your agent and say, who else do you have who's who I would like? Because uh, this is a person who knows your style and knows how you think. Sure. And, you know, and so I think Matt really did play matchmaker. He had other very, very talented writers who he represented, who he could have thrown Neil's way. But he, Matt kind of made this happen. Matt said, Andy is right for this. You should hire Andy. Uh, or I think, I don't know. I've never been told that, but I just have a hunch. Mm-hmm. So I walked in this meeting and I was, pr- and I was nervous L- like anyone, you know, because the show was so good. I walked into this meeting thinking, you know, breaking all of my rules. Basically I had established this sort of cool, calm ethos over the years where I was like, you, ne- you should never walk into a meeting thinking that this is make or break. You should never be so desperate that you can't mm-hmm. live without a job. Like you have to fucking, you have to find a way to, to accept yourself if you get it or don't mm-hmm. get it. But this media community, I did not have that attitude. <laughs> I walked in thinking, if I don't get this job, I don't think there's any point in working anymore because there's nothing on TV like this. And now that I've seen, like, you know, it's like you know, in that movie, um, Defending Your Life and Albert Brooks is buying a car in the very beginning. And the guy says, this is the other car. This is the, I can't remember. It's like, this is the, this is the, the, the X model. And he's like, why did you show me that? I (laughs) don't ever show me that when I've already bought this. It's like, don't ever show me community. When I'm when I was thinking that, you know, a a job on super ninjas was going to be great. Super Ninjas was great, yeah. and I mean no disrespect to yeah. Super Ninjas. It was a great accomplishment. Anyone who gets a TV show on the air, but still, it's like you've t- watching Community ruined me for everything. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in this meeting, and I'm sort of gushing over them. And I wasn't prepared. I, I don't remember if I was prepared for this meeting or not. Oftentimes, typically, I would call my agent on the way to a meeting and say, "What do I need to know? Or who am I meeting? And what are they like? What can you tell me about them? Give me some inside info or whatever. Or what can you tell me to fucking calm my nerves?" And I think that's all. He, what he did was he just said, "Just go in, just, you know, just go in there. You know, they love your stuff. Just be yourself. Just breathe." And so I, I sat down and I gave them all their gifts, which was a nice icebreaker. The uh, the Negro Space Program is also a really good icebreaker. You know, I find I ended up finishing that movie and I, I it showed in the in the the Aspen Comedy Festival and then it it, got, it kind of went viral mm-hmm. after that. It became an early viral thing. Uh, so I was I'm I was known for that, and so uh, that's a good calling card. And so. I remember Dan didn't make much, Dan didn't make any eye contact. And I can't remember if I was told that or not. I think Matt might've said, Dan's not going to make any eye contact or something like mm. that. And I had heard that the job, I'd, I'd also heard through the grapevine that it was a very hard place to work. Uh, the year before I was working on the show called sons of Tucson and a friend of mine, Robin shore was talking about another friend of hers who was on staff at community during season one. And she said, Oh, my friend is having such a hard time. She's miserable. She, the, the show is really dysfunctional. Uh, the showrunner, you know, likes to drink at work <laughs> and he, he hides in his office and, and uh, he throws out scripts and no one knows what he wants. And, you know, it's like there was all, all these, all the power struggles that were happening in season one had really affected uh, the, the writers staff there. And they had a bunch of people who, who just said, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I had heard that and I remembered hearing that. And I remember when I heard it, I thought there is no situation so hard that I would quit. 
<laughs> I remember thinking like, I remember thinking I am, I know, I, I know this about myself. I'm wired this mm-hmm. way. I am a really solid radar O'Reilly character. You know, I am a very, I am a, I am the class and the definition of a beta male. I will work for anyone. Uh, like I love being number two <laughs> in the hierarchy. Yeah. I am built for that. I think it's because I was the youngest of three boys or whatever. Okay. I don't know if it's nature or nurture or whatever, but I am, I am not a person who, who enjoys being in charge. I'm not a person who butts heads with anyone. I like taking orders and pleasing someone. <laughs> <laughs> so when I heard that this Dan Harmon character was difficult to work for, I was like, I could do that. <laughs> I, uh, uh, that might be the best job for me. Uh, I mean, I didn't walk into the meeting saying that, but maybe I was projecting yeah. it. I'm not sure. But Dan was Dan co- right away complimented something in this spec script that I had written. Mm. I had written a script that I was really, really proud of right around that time that got me this meeting. And it was a uh, what I was proud of was that it was a it was a pilot that was a, about a um, uh, a young woman whose fiance had just died. Mm. Now, it was basically a pilot. The pitch was it was like imagine if you were watching Friends. But the but um, Jennifer Aniston's character, instead of being instead of um, walking away from marrying a guy, the, uh, her her fiance had just died, mm. uh, and he was all of their best friends. So it was a group of friends who were missing someone. Mm. Uh, so it was kind of a big swing. It was the kind of thing where if you pitch it to a network executive, they they all said like, "I don't want to. That's that's sad. That's too sad." Mm. Um, but I had wrestled with it, and I had found a way. Like I could, I had found sort of a melancholy tone with this pilot that was that was turning some heads and people were liking it and i can say in hindsight it meshed with community's sensibility yeah. in that way too yeah. uh sad people you know community <clears throat> it was that you know the whatever the you know that vince garaldi music that plays during the peanut specials that, <laughs> that's the music of, of community and, and that was the music of my pilot yeah. you know it's that that ennui you know and so dan complimented that script and he he read and he recited he, he told me a, a specific line that he liked he said i like the way you write jokes i like this joke it was a joke where a guy was asking you know the girl at the center of this story a guy you know like her, one of her sort of weaselly friends was uh she, she was hugging people like she was she was giving everyone hugs because she was trying to lift them up and make them <laughs> happier and this guy said i didn't get a hug and she said you got a long one you got a nice long hug at the funeral and he said you were wearing a thick coat (laughs) 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 and and dan said i like that joke because you didn't push it too far uh it was dirty we know who this guy is but he said it in a in a way that you know it's like he just liked that i was like i had a character do something gross (laughs) uh that was an acceptable level of grossness (laughs) yeah that's that's great and i think in some way it was like yeah that's a pierce hawthorne joke you know yeah um uh and so that was just about that was kind of all he said and and uh neil and garrett did most of the talking Mm -hmm. i think and God, I don't remember anything else about that meeting except that, you know, after a meeting, typically I'll call my agent and I'll say, I think it went well. They, Dan liked a, a joke of mine. Oh, I remember something else about the meeting was just, just that they were asked, they were talking to me about the show and I was gushing about it for sure. And I was saying, uh, I, th- I was probably confessing that, that watching his show had ruined me for other shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was pr- probably doing a fair amount of ass kissing, yeah. but I think honestly, the way Dan Harmon works, this is just a theory, but I think probably what Dan sensed in me was all the stuff that I would, that I didn't say or couldn't say, you know, I think it was a pheromone thing. Mm-hmm. I think he basically sensed for me that I was 
a decent fellow who um, had enough talent to write for him and who would put up with his uh, quirks and, and mm. character flaws. Like who I think I was, he sort of sensed that I was someone he would enjoy being around. Mm. Cause like in later years when I've other people have asked me, other, other people have said, I'm going to a meeting with Dan Harmon. What can you tell me? All I can tell people is like, it won't, it won't have anything to do with what you say. It'll be what he senses about you. Mm. Like all interviews, I think, but you know, he's pretty, he's really, really empathic. He really, really has a very finely honed sense of your inner self, huh. of, of who people are. And it's like the people who make him uncomfortable are like people who are too desperate for his approval. He doesn't like yeah. that. And uh, people who seem like they were cool in high school, you know, jocks. Uh, he's, he's anyone who seems like they had their shit together, he, he's never going to work yeah. with that person. You know, he's he likes to hire. He wants to. He, it's the Harmon Town crowd. Yeah. He wants to surround himself with the misfits and losers and the people who identify that way, because uh, that's his tribe. Yeah. And so he he picked that. He picked up on that in me, and uh, it worked. So I mean, when I called my agent on the way home, I said, I, I think it, I think it went well. Uh, I enjoyed them tremendously, and I really really hope I get it. And it was very shortly after that he called and said they loved you. Uh, uh, they're making an offer, and then. That Thursday, the paintball episode aired, mm. and I was like, "Oh, oh my, my gosh. god! Yeah. <laughs> Not only have I just been hired on this show, but this is what they yeah. do." It was orgasmic. It was amazing. Oh my god! Yeah. Really, like the the greatest moment. Just so amazing. Stay tuned. Uh, I'll be releasing part two of my interview with Andy Bobro. It's a Q and A on some of his most famous episodes. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you.